Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Every morning, my alarm sounds at about 2.45, and uh, I go through almost about the same robotic motions. I begin by shutting off both alarms, and yes, I do have two alarms. Uh, one is on my headboard, the other is on my dresser, a distance away from my bed, so I actually have to leave the bed. Uh, the reason is, uh, for a while there, I was given the responsibility of opening the plant, and with guys depending on me, I really couldn't afford to oversleep. I get dressed, and then I step in front of the mirror, and I'm convinced nobody looks good at that time in the morning. <laughs> but I do my best. <laughs> uh, I go to the kitchen. I put some coffee in the Keurig and uh, eat some fruit multivitamin, and uh, put a salad and a few of Merrill's cookies in my lunch bucket, and I grab my coffee, and I head off to work. Okay, I get there about 20, 25 minutes early, so I have some, some time to read. The great thing is that all the sane people are still sleeping, so it's really quiet, and uh, it's a nice time just to have a little bit, some quiet time. But how do you wake up? Some people can wake up in five minutes, and there's other people that need about three hours. I work with one of those guys. He needs about three hours. Uh, you talk to him before 8 o'clock, it's at your own risk. <laughs> uh, if you ever do any camping, you'll soon figure out who the morning people are. At 6 o'clock in the morning, they're out there clanging and banging away. They got uh, the fire going. They're fixing eggs, pancakes. Hash browns, biscuits and gravy, sausage, you name it, it's happening. It's for those people that I have Proverbs 27, 14. This is just for you and you need to see it. And the Hebrew does not make it less strong either. <laughs> it means he's despised. <laughs> oh, the rest of us who aren't morning people, we kind of fall out of the campers about 9 o'clock in this zombie-like state and asking the question, what time is it? <laughs> well, this morning, I'll tell you what time it is. It's high time for us to wake up. It's time that we pursue holiness. It's time that we pursue righteousness. It's time we say no to sin. It is time we clean out our closets. It's time we put on Christ. For the why? The day is at hand and our salvation is nearer than we have believed. Amen? Well, this morning I uh, want to welcome all of you to this part of our, our worship, and especially the visitors, and uh, also to Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, last weekend we spent uh, some time camping with the youth, and just want to thank uh, them again, as well as the youth leaders, for the, the food and the conversation. We just had a really a good time, and uh, it was just good connecting. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Romans 13.
Last weekend, I spent some time exhorting the youth to seize the moment, taking advantage of the opportunities that they have in front of them to grow up spiritually. And I went on to demonstrate how the Hebrews were allowing those opportunities just to slip by. They naturally drifted away from God. Inwardly, they slowly departed from God. They developed a calloused and a hardened heart towards God. Yes, they were Christians. They sat under the preaching of God's word week after week, and they trafficked in unlived or unexperienced truth, and because of it, they became hardened to truth. It says their ears were dull, they were dull of hearing. The word of God no longer penetrated. They were alive but asleep, not literally but spiritually. A carnal laziness and a spiritual lethargy. Here in Romans, the latter part of Romans 13, think of it awakening spiritually. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul is sounding the alarm. In verse 12, there's the, that first movement, the process of, of getting up and, and getting your day started. Then in verses 13 and 14, there's the sound of people, the sound of activity. You're on the job, or perhaps at school, or maybe you're starting laundry. But verse 11 isn't a literal alarm clock. It is God sounding the alarm. Look at it. Look at verse 11 and it says, And that knowing the time that now is the high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than, when, than we believed. Notice the context. It is written to Christians. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul uses the word brethren. So we know that Paul has in mind believers, people who are saved. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world system put you to sleep. Stay awake. When you hear that alarm clock sound, if you're like me, the first, thing you, the first question you think about that enters your mind is, what time is it? It's like, no, it can't be a 2.45. That's the question. But why is God sounding the alarm? It's because Christians are asleep and don't realize what time it is. They are unaware of kingdom time. You know, in the church today, there's, there's no sense of urgency. Uh, there's really no haste. You know, I remember before the year 2000, Especially in my growing up years, there was a lot of messages we heard about the coming of Christ. That's changed. Do you realize you don't hear as many of those messages? You see, today the church has fallen into a spiritual slumber, and it's the error of our generation. Someone wrote, in a declining culture... One of the characteristics is that ordinary people are unaware of what's happening. Only those who know and can read the signs of decadence are posing the questions that as yet have no answers. 
Mr. Average Citizen is comfortable in his complacency and as unconcerned as a silverfish on a carton of discarded magazines on world affairs. He's not asking any questions because his social benefits from the government give him a false sense of security. This is both his tragedy and his trouble. Modern man has become a spectator of world events, observing on his television screen without becoming involved. He watches the ominous events of our time pass before his eyes while he sips beer in his comfortable chair in the den. He doesn't realize what's happening. He doesn't understand that the world is on fire and he's about to be burned with it. But some of you think might be thinking this morning, ah, we as Christians, we've never had it so good. We're well taught. We're well read. We're well clothed and we are well employed. We've never had life so good. But in many ways, we are like the church of Laodicea who said we're rich, we've got an increase in good, and we really don't need anything. If that isn't asleep and spiritually out to lunch, I'm not sure what is. You know why we've lost our sense of urgency? It's because we've bought into the mindset of our culture, the world. This present evil age, we have this idea that we have lots of time. You see, the Bible divides time into two ages. This present age and the age to come. We know that the kingdom of God was established by Jesus when he came to this earth and through his death, burial, resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, there was the establishment of this present age or the kingdom of God. This took place in this present age, and it is in this present age that we wait for the age to come. And that age to come is preceded by the parousia, the coming of Jesus Christ. There are absolutely no events that need to happen before the return of Jesus Christ for his bride. We are in the final stage. In fact, it's the next event on God's calendar. Now, when Paul uses time, he doesn't use the Greek word chrono, meaning chronologically, that's the word we get from it. He uses the word kurios, meaning epoch, age, or era. The Christian who is asleep spiritually does not understand the age or the era he's living in. He doesn't have an understanding of the importance of the time that he's living in. He is spiritually ignorant of his time. Why is that a tragedy? Because what we believe translates directly into how we live. You can't get away from that truth. We only live out what we believe. 2 Chronicles 12, verse 32, you're going to see how this plays out. 
It says, And the children of Issachar were men that had understanding of the times and noticed to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them that were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. These men understood the time and they were able to give direction what was proper and what was wise for Israel. There's more. In Matthew 16, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they were trying to test him or tempt him. It says, And the Pharisees along with the Sadducees came tempting, desiring him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And Jesus answered and said, said unto them, When it is evening, you say it is fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul, foul weather to, today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye discern the face of the sky, but notice what Jesus says, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Why was that a tragedy? Because the time, it was the age of redemption. God in literal living form stood in front of them and they missed it. They rejected it because they were undiscerning of the time. Do you understand why it's so important that you guys have some idea or discernment the time we are living in? I don't mind telling you that I get offended when I hear this sloppy theology concerning end times. I heard one individual say, I'm a pan-millennialist. However it pans out is okay with me. You know what that individual was really saying? He's saying it really doesn't matter. It's really not that important to know. It's okay to go through life spiritually asleep. Don't take God seriously on this matter. Does that affect how you live? Yeah. Yeah, sure does. That's why Paul says it is high time we awake out of the spiritual sleep. Our salvation is nearer than we have believed. Our salvation has three parts to it. What does he mean when he says our salvation is nearer than we believed? I thought we had salvation. Well, salvation has three parts to it. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. In justification, we're given a right standing before a holy God. It is by grace through faith. Jesus, our substitute, pays for our sin and now extends us the right standing before God through by his grace and that becomes our possession through faith so justification has to do with being saved from the penalty of sin in sanctification we enter a process we when we're, we are saved from the power of sin in Christ we're given a, a position we Positionally, we're given a position in Christ, 
but experientially we enter into a process where God begins to shape us and make us Christ-like. It's a process. Uh, all of you who are born again have been entered into the process. Whom God justifies, he goes on to sanctify. And the, the main tools that God uses in this process is his word and the spirit of God. Now there's a third part to our salvation. And that's the part that the apostle Paul is referring to, and that is glorification. That is where we are saved from the presence of sin. When Jesus returns for his bride, we will be taken out of here and we will be removed from sin's presence. What a wonderful moment that will be. No more temptations. That will be a wonderful moment. We get to see God in all his glory. But that's just part of the package. In Romans 8.22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. But not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. Daily, we're being barraged by the media. Reports of wars, famines, droughts, floods, diseases, fires, earthquakes. You think it can't get worse? Wait till the next day, it usually does. You see, in salvation, God has secured our soul spirit. Notice the earth, it says, notice the earth. In salvation, God has secured our soul spirit, but we await the full redemption of this body. Let me put it this way. You see, every ache and pain, every gray and white hair, every season of the year that changes, every wrinkle, every new day, and every fresh grave ought to remind you that your salvation is near. You see, the world groans under this constant barrage of the curse of sin, famines, and the world, this earth longs for the day that you and I are fully revealed as the Son of God, the sons of God, our full redemption. So in verse 11, God sounds the alarm and says, wake up. Verse 12, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Think of your morning. As much as you'd like to, you can't keep hitting, hitting that snooze alarm forever. You've got to get out. You've got to keep moving. But see, Paul is not talking about a literal night and a literal day. This is connected to the spiritual. So what is Paul talking about when he talks about night, talks about day? Let me show you. 
In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come up onto a man who's been born blind. And the disciples have this idea that at the bottom or at beneath every sin, someone is at fault. It is someone, there's a reason behind every handicap. And so they naturally asked Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? And the answer that Jesus gives ought to give hope to every parent of every handicapped child and to every person who has a handicap. Notice what Jesus says, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, Jesus was saying this, he was born blind so everybody could see God's work demonstrated clearly. Often it is those of us who are without the handicaps who have pity upon those who do. Somehow this morning I think, I think we might have it reversed. Backwards. Because I think it should be those with handicaps who should have pity upon us. Because it is in the lives of those individuals that we often see the work of God demonstrated most clearly. There's something else. Though it is unsaid, Jesus clearly implies it, that God doesn't make mistakes. God has a special purpose for those who are born with handicaps. Jesus continues, I must work the works of him that hath sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the point I want. Jesus is the light of the world. And when he walked on this earth, it was day. He was the light of the world, and it was day. But when he ascended, it turned back to night, darkness. And the only light that is on this earth is the light that is reflected in you. You reflect the light of the Son of God. That is the only light that is on this, on this earth now. It is a time of darkness. Let me illustrate that. The other morning when I awoke and uh, went outside, it was really bright out there. It was, I don't know if they call it the super moon or whatever they call it. A lot of moonlight, but that really is a misnomer. It's not moonlight. The moon does not produce light. It was reflected sunlight. The same is true of you. In this present time of darkness, you reflect the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the sun. But then when Jesus, he's talking, when he, now he's saying the night is at hand. The night is almost over. 
And the day is almost at hand. It's ready to be daylight again. He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. It is night, but the day is almost here. Jesus Christ is almost coming back. He'll soon be on his way. You know, as a church, we, we continue to work at this thing of harmony with balance. Uh, oneness. How do we encourage some of you to get more involved while at the same time encourage patience for those who are doing so much? Or how do we encourage modesty without getting stuck in the quicksand of legalism? So often we think that when problems are complicated, the solution has to be complicated as well. It's not true. It's not true. Stop and consider the age that you're living in. That it is almost day that Jesus is almost coming back. Imagine how, how different, how easy oneness will be if every one of you believed and Jesus is just about ready to return. And you would start filtering your life through that one simple truth. Jesus is coming back in a week, a month, six months. Isn't it amazing how all these, some of these issues wouldn't be issues anymore? How oneness would be achieved almost overnight? If you're asleep spiritually on the threshold of eternity, your values are going to change. You find that with people. When they face death, their values suddenly change. But you see, that's the truth Paul is trying to get through to all of us. We are on the threshold of eternity. Jesus is almost ready to return. Change your values now. Change now. Take off your, 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 your night clothes. Simply put, none of you this morning came to church with your pajamas. It's not proper, is it? You took your night clothes off. You came to church wearing your best. We hope you took your night clothes off. Jury's out maybe on a few of you, all right? I'm kidding. You see, God's going to give us some straight talk on what is proper for a Christian to wear and what is not proper. It's a list. It's a list of what is should be worn by the Christian and what should not be worn by a Christian. What is night clothes and what are, what are the clothes of the day? And that's not legalism, by the way. God gives you a list and you better stand up and pay attention. 
Verse 13 contains the negative and verse 14 contains the positive. Verse 13 Let us walk honestly as in the day. Think of Jesus being here, being present. What is proper? He touches on three areas of our lives. Not in rioting and drunkenness, or some having partying or carousing. So the first area he touches on is a lack of personal discipline. Not in chambering or wantonness. Some put it this way, sexual promiscuity or sensuality. That's a lack of personal morality. The third area is not in strife and envying. That is a lack in personal relationships. Discipline, morality, and relationships. Those are the three areas in which you are able, which you are capable to reflect or diminish the light of Christ. Carousing and drunkenness has to do with our leisure and the improper use of it. We are instructed to stay away from those things which weaken our inner fiber. Do you? When you don't have anything to do, what do you do? What do you watch? You know there's a situation with temptation that you can't handle? Do you still go? What do you read? What do you allow through your eye gate? What do you cultivate in your mind? Sow a thought, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a destiny. What's your standard? What do you where do you spend your time when nobody is watching? Let's go further. A lack of personal discipline leads to a lack of personal morality. Chambering and wantonness, sexual promiscuity and sensual sensuality. We all know that that stuff is all around of us, around us. It's most of us guys have enough seen enough images from just the advertising that goes on to last us a lifetime. We got those images burned in our minds. Today you no longer need to go to some seedy little adult bookstore if you like immorality. It's as close as your laptop or your smartphone. And it's a silent epidemic in this country. And today it's no longer just men who are affected. There's a lot of gals that are getting caught up in the same. Dads, are you checking up on your sons? What they're watching? Moms, are you 
asking your daughters? Dad, is somebody checking up on you? You wearing the night clothes of immorality, sensuality? In Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah is lamenting the sins of the priests and of the people. He, he asks the question, were they ashamed when they had committed the abominations? And then he answers it, nay, nay, they were not ashamed. And neither did they blush. When's the last time you've seen somebody blush at something that is improper? The better question would be, do you blush? It's something that's off color. Isn't it amazing how we've become desensitized to sin? Strife and envy. They almost seem out of place on this list. You know why that is? Because there are acceptable sins in the church. They're no less destructive. Those sins will be, wreak havoc in the church. That's why they're on the list. Those relational sins could be just as destructive. What's the answer to these sins? It's putting on Christ and making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust thereof. Pursue a Christ-likeness and stop planning for sin. You know, there's a reality that very few of us just stumble into sin. There's something that uh, David understood, and it's something that's helped me, and it might be helpful to you, so I'm going to show you this morning. We don't just stumble into sin. Psalm 36, David understood this. He understood how it worked. Notice what he says. The transgressions of the wicked saith within my heart there is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. The ungodly person within, when you walk in sin, when you gravitate towards sin, you have to admit that you really don't have a healthy fear and reverence for God. There's no fear in their eyes. Two, look up verse four. He that devises mischief upon his bed, he setteth himself in a way that is not good for he yet poureth not evil. There is a planning that takes place prior to sin. We don't just stumble. Very seldom do we just stumble into sin. We have conditioned our mind for the fall. We cultivate and plan for it. You see, if you want to blame someone or use excuses, it, it's not until we get honest with God about our heart that we really grow spiritually. I love what uh, Nate was teaching this morning, recognizing how we stand before God. 
That's why the Apostle Paul says, make no provision. Provision means planning. Stop planning for sin. And put on Christ. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. To walk by the Spirit is to live by the Word of God. I want to close with this poem. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, and I see how I blocked him here and checked him there and would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich, but I stand poor, stripped of all but grace. While memory runs like a haunted thing down a path I can't retrace. Though my desolate heart will well nigh break, with tears I cannot shed. I cover my face with empty hands. And I bow my uncrowned head. O Lord, of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and mold me to the pattern that thou hast planned. Let's bow. You know, this morning God is speaking to all of us to recognize the age we live in. To realize Jesus is coming soon. And I sense that God is calling us higher. He's He's calling us deeper. He's calling us closer. So there's really only one question that lingers, and that is the question, are you willing to take off your night clothes and really put on Christ? Are you willing to say yes? Yes, mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. Father, we bow before you this moment, undone, bankrupt. In need. Father, we realize as we stand before your holiness, your standard, and your righteousness, none of us come close. But Lord, we're grateful that you're not finished. You haven't given up. You're still at it. changing us. 
Father, this morning I pray for those who are yielding their will today in a new way to be molded and shaped into your likeness. Empower them. Encourage them. And continually remind them of the time they live in. Help them to be sober but contagious. Help them to be the light to this world. We want to give you the glory for all of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.